Coming up today on the Zeitcast, if I have a life message, if there's one thing I would want to be able to ultimately say to the world, and I can only say one thing, I think it's what's in the message you're about to hear. Many of you know and love my dear mate, Jared McKenna from Perth, Australia. This is a sermon that I did for Jared in the wonderful new work he's connected to of Steeple Church in Melbourne, Australia. So greetings to you, friends, at Steeple Church, beautiful community. And Jared is certainly a beautiful soul, one of my very best friends and one of the folks who privately and publicly in his work and his life and his witness has most shaped me and continues to shape me. I don't want to say too much to lead into this. I feel like this is one of these times to let the thing be the thing. I do want to say I'm so happy that you're here. And I hope that the invitation running beneath this message, the the through line, I hope you can feel something of the electricity of the spirit, chemistry of spirit. I always feel when I talk with Jared and we share about these things that are, uh, I feel very holy and as revolutionary to me now as ever before. I will say, would so appreciate if you like, if you subscribe, if you comment, uh, certainly, if you're able to support this work on Patreon, deeply, deeply grateful for that. But whoever you are, however you got here, all of you is welcome in this space. I uh, hope that you'll hear my deepest passion today, and that is a passion for us all to come to this table, this meal that heals, restores, that makes us whole. Let's go. Hey, we are we have a really special message this morning. Um, Jared's rung in one of his mates, uh, a guy named Jonathan Martin, who's a who's a pretty unreal theologian from the states, to uh, speak to us this morning. Um, I couldn't believe it when I when Emmanuel told me that they got this guy, but of course Jared knows everyone, so um, it's gonna be awesome. I think Jared's gonna intro him, and so I'm just gonna throw to the screens, and I uh, hope you're blessed by this message. Well, g'day, Steeple Church. Uh, we are in this new wineskins series where we're being expanded and stretched uh, that we might welcome the new wine of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out over us as a community. I was just saying um, before we started to record, I can't think of anyone better to preach this message than one of my dearest friends in the world. Now, please forgive his accent. Um, uh, hopefully you'll have the gift of interpretation and can understand it yourself. Um, he, he is, uh, not, not from the South in terms of Southern hemisphere, but he is from the South and that will make itself clear. Um, Jonathan Martin is, um, one of the most gifted preachers I know personally, but even if I didn't know him personally, he, he is somebody who actually lives his messages before he preaches them. And, uh, this meal, and how it's fed him is um, is something that's so real and so alive in him that I think you'll feel that contagion in this being shared. Uh, he is somebody who has led communities through this journey of what it is to go from a people who 
uh, do these things because Jesus asked to actually realizing Jesus asked these things that we might participate in the grace that actually saves mm-hmm. us. So the way that we get in is the way that we go on and what it is to be formed as a people who are participating in this. So I hope that you would make my dear brother, Jonathan Martin, feel very, very welcome. Jono, we're really glad you're here. Mm, thank you so much, friends. such an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, mm-hmm. let me pray for you, Jono, and um, then... Uh, we just leave room for you and the Holy Spirit. How's that? Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> Friends, let's pray. Precious Lord, uh, we thank you for the gift of friendship and the way that you get at us, uh, that you open a door to your future through those around us. And I thank you for my dear brother, Jonathan. I thank you for the ways that I have seen your saving grace in my life through him being there in some of the most difficult periods of my life, reminding me of your goodness, bringing me into your promises, holding me when I couldn't hold what was going on in my life. And I can't think of anybody better who actually embodies what this message is than my dear brother right now. So I ask that you anoint him with the same spirit that you poured out upon your son, that he might minister that kind of good news which sets the captives free. We thank you for his gifts and his witness. We thank you for who he is and the freedom him being himself provides for us to step into who we are, to be ourselves in our baptism, that you might do through us what you long to do for all the world. So we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Do your will. Do your will, Holy Spirit. Anoint our brother. Feed our hearts that we might gather around your table with hearts open to receive your future. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, our Mother, our Creator, our Liberator, and welcome you to do your work in us. And all God's people said, Amen. There's nobody who more just releases me. I I feel... I never feel more at home or more myself than when we get to do things like this. It's like I feel reminded of of who I am and the deepest things in me and the fact that uh, just to have this invitation and to be with you, Steeple Church, uh, it's, it's such a privilege. And I know you're like, get on with it. You know, and I, like, I think they are aware at this point of my accent. The uh, So, you know, for how many years of my life, I didn't know I had an accent. I'm like, I don't have an accent. I thought this was just how everybody talks. Um, but it's so good to be with you. I love, I love the premise of this series. I do want to dive right in. And it's... It's always fascinating for me uh, whenever I get the opportunity to share about Eucharist, communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. It, it will never not strike me as ironic and wonderful because if I'm candid of all of these sacraments, of these practices that that shape us, this is probably the one historically in my life that was the least meaningful to me. And uh, weirdly, actually, even infused with a sense of terror, um, now that this meal is so central to me and so central to how I uh, really how I see everything, uh, I I have to rehearse a little bit to kind of go back. But there was definitely a time that I was there was a lot of terror around this practice. And uh, so I think the best way to do this is to go right to a text. The reading's a little lengthy, but I feel like this is worth taking some time with. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and of course, this is Paul 
I'm not going to give too much context. We'll just dive right in. First Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 17, Paul says, now in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Think of a lot of gatherings in America right now that I would say people come together and it's not for the better, but for the worse. But well, <laughs> I'll leave that be for now. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you. For only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. I'll pause right there to say this much. So coming from a deeply Pentecostal background, which I cherish, we're, uh, we're wild. I come from the wildest Pentecostals. I come from the rural Pentecostals. We weren't even like the cool Azusa Street, West Coast. We were like the freak out in a barn and a schoolhouse Appalachian Pentecostals, y'all. Uh, we're not, not, not the cool ones, the holiness Pentecostals. And I love my heritage. I love where I come from. But one of the things so interesting is that, um, you know, the, this meal was not that central to us. So about like the Baptists would in our neck of the woods, like the Southern Baptists, we would practice communion maybe once or twice a year. And so I'm so struck even now reading this again, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper because immediately my ears still perk up like, wait, was the reason they were getting together ostensibly because of the Lord's Supper, <laughs> that was the problem is, oh, when you do this, it's not really about the Lord's Supper. Because we very much understood this, and I understood this to be a ceremonial reenactment that was entirely symbolic. So that already disrupts the imagination I had around this text, because it's like, wait, the Christians are supposed to gather for this purpose. Um, but verse 21, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. I want to really encourage you in your own writing exercise to try saying some of this to someone in a letter. Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. <laughs> Just... Just send an email that way, I dare you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I know this is text heavy, but this is the part you have to understand that if I can put you in the time machine to go back with the 12-year-old version, uh, version of me that's practically hiding under the pew, uh, when the handful of times we would do communion, this is the reason right here, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in an unworthy manner, will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and also then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
for all who eat and drink without discerning the body. That's the critique. Without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. I learned all the scripture that I know now in the King James Version growing up. So I, whenever I read that, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I, I still heard the King James. Eateth and drinketh damnation unto himself. And still every time now that like, uh, I don't know, I, I can be eating a cheeseburger or um, I probably shouldn't even say in this context, I don't know how much judgment I might bring that I still haven't weaned myself fully off of diet sodas. I, every time I, I take some of the whole thing, I am eating and drinking damnation to myself. <laughs> Think about that. All the toxins. I th- I'm consciously choosing to eateth and drinketh damnation unto myself. But for Paul, this is very serious. Uh, you eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we, ought, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation about the other things I will give instructions when I come. Well, this is some awfully strong instruction for a ceremonial symbolic. (laughs) So this thing that we, and we truly understood it that way. Well, this is just more like we're reenacting the, 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 the death of Jesus. It's, it's, it's memorial. That was symbolic. And yet here's the reason I lived in such terror. So positively speaking, we didn't have any sort of understanding theologically of what communion would do, except you remember the death of Christ. Well, you know what? There are all kinds of ways I can remember the death of Jesus that don't involve the threat of possible (laughs) eternal damnation and death. Uh, Some are sick and ill. Some are even dying among you. What? I mean, the, the stakes feel pretty high. This is why I always understood communion to be basically like Russian roulette. Uh, which is a terrible thing to think about, but think about Russian roulette works, right? You know, so you've got the one bowl in the chamber, you spin it, and the best case scenario is you don't die. That's the win. Not dying is the win. And this is absolutely how I thought about the, the Lord's Supper. It was like, okay, well, if the best case scenario is that I don't die, I could just not do this and not take the risk to begin with. So, uh, so help me, especially, I, I, I really don't, it is funny now, but I don't say it to be funny. I honestly recall going through puberty. It would have been like kind of, you know, 10 to 13-ish and literally thinking, I'm going to dump this juice out somewhere because I don't be able to see that I'm not taking it to just not take the risk. I'm like, I'm having unclean thoughts. I, I am I am ineligible for the table. And it set up this whole thing in my life to where whenever there was communion, even years later, it's like, Oh, have I thoroughly searched myself? Have I confessed all of my sin? Uh, all of these kinds of things. Well, the funny thing about this, and I, and I, I, you know, Jared, I've never talked about this before, uh, but it just—I was thinking about this specifically tonight. What I'm actually not trying to do is just kind of take the teeth out of this text. That's very that has sharp teeth to it. Um, Frederick Buechner, uh, we lost earlier this year, but um, uh, amazing writer. He wrote a series of novels in the 1970s around a character called Leo Bebb. I don't know if those novels would be considered problematic now. It was the 1970s, so everybody was 
experimental and pushing things, but it's, you know, complex novelish. But the most memorable character in those four novels to me is that Leo Bebb has an assistant whose name is Brownie. And the only thing Brownie is known for is taking the bite out of scripture. So he's always kind of following around, like we bring up whatever verses or kind of have hard edges. And like, now you see, here's why this doesn't really mean any of that, but it doesn't come off great. It kind of feels like, you know, this is like, he's just afraid of the sharp edges of things. I am actually not uh, the sort of person at this stage in my life that really wants to take the sharp edges off of scripture or anything else. Um, It's not, and I'm sure I'm preaching to my own inner critic here because I know some of the voices in my tradition, how they would feel about some of the things I'm saying. But actually, I I feel in a weird way, I'm I'm more drawn than ever to uh, to, to some of these texts that are a little bit wilder I'm not not to avoid the hard truth of them. It's more I just think we've so often misunderstood the things they're actually hard about. So like the what makes this text terrifying has absolutely nothing to do with uh, and I'm not even saying that there's not a place for this conversation. But it's not about purity. This is not like is your thought life pure? Have you confessed all your sins? Uh, have you been jealous today and have it like got you know it's that's just not what's going on because in fact, Paul in no way ever gives us this gesture uh, towards people being unworthy. There's no reference here to unworthy people. Folks, if, if you had to be morally pure to come to the table of Christ, this is a pretty, this is a pretty high bar. Like on what, on what day of the week are you like, you know what? Yeah. I definitely think I'm worthy of the body and blood of our Lord today. I mean, it's just, this is just not about moral purity. It's not there. Paul's critique is not, has nothing to do with moral purity. But what he does say is that there are people who are coming to the table in an unworthy manner. It's not that the people themselves are somehow defiled or contaminated or condemned. It's that the way their posture and coming to the table is the issue. Now, before I press in, I want to give just a little bit of context here. Um, I have my own riff, as uh, as Jared well knows, about uh, Eucharist, about communion. And I don't know that I'm right about this, but this is one of the things. If there's like a theological thing I'm willing to kind of rumble about, this is kind of the one for me. Um, I understand why in some corners of Christian tradition, and I even think it's beautiful to point I understand the idea of people needing to go through catechesis of some sort or be formed uh, before baptism and and communion. I understand uh, because the reverence we have for the act, um, people kind of going through a process and procedure. And yet the thing that always shapes me so much is this. In our four gospels, the scandal of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth is always who he's eating and drinking with. It's the central critique of Jesus in the Gospels. It's coming at us from every corner. Now, the Gospels are written, as best as we could tell, later than the epistles. So these are already churches that apparently are formed around this meal. Ostensibly, they really are gathering around the meal. Now, I am convinced that the reason the Gospels emphasize this scandal is that the table practice of Jesus, imagine this, was supposed to directly inform the table practice of the church. Mind-blowing. The practice of Jesus was supposed to inform the practice of Christians. 
<laughs> that's not often how we're, how we're told this, but I, I believe that's the case. I think that's the reason the table practice of Jesus gets that much press is that the idea is that like Jesus, we were also supposed to be scandalous in our practice, in our own table practice of who's received, who's dignified, like all of that. So this is where I do pretty flagrantly break with a lot of Christian tradition, even some of which, which goes back early. It's like, eh, I think we kind of went in a, in a ditch pretty early on, not maybe fully grasping the radical nature, the radical invitation of this meal. Because, I mean, what do they, they always say to Jesus? Why does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And he does this without, they did not have to go through a class. <laughs> they didn't have to be, they didn't have to be catechized. They didn't have to be baptized. Not saying that's bad. I'm saying no one who was eating and sharing these meals with Jesus actually actually did this. So I, I can't think that's the idea. Moral purity is just not the issue. And yet, what's wild about this is Paul does actually, I'm not Brownie from the Leo Beb novels. I don't know how to take the bite out of this. Paul is absolutely warning people about having an irreverent attitude towards communion. But the irreverence is not even this direction towards God. The irreverence is in not discerning the body of Christ. The issue is the attitude they have, the posture they have towards others within the community. So the subtext here, and uh, this, is, this is not a hot take, I find this is very clear in like how Paul sets this up. So essentially what's happening is people gather for this meal, and the same thing was happening in these early Christian communities that were happening in the broader Roman community around them, which is to say, the wealthier patrons within the community not only got VIP seats, not only are they on the front two rows, not only do they get special privileges and time with pastors and my meddling too much and like all the things like, oh, we saw, we, 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 we this is a big giver. Not only, it, it was the same. Not only are they courted in this way, but then they get to eat and drink all they want. And the poor people within the community would essentially got the scraps. Paul is so radical about this as to say some people are sick and dying among you because this thing, which is apparently not just a symbolic ceremonial reenactment, I, I don't have the time or the energy. I frankly don't care how you work any of this out theologically. In some form, the embodied Christ is present in this meal. How do you want to work out that math? Like, like run with it. The embodied Christ is present here. And Paul says, uh, the way that you reverence that is that you have to lay down your judgments of the people around you, and you got to come humble, and you got to come hungry. He does not say, I can't stress this enough, he does not say that you need to make sure that you've carefully made a list of all your sins and written it down in a letter. He does not say that you need hours of agonizing self-reflection. There is none of that. But what he does say is that you don't get to come to this table thinking you're better than anybody else. You don't get to come from a posture of taking and grasping. You come humble and you come hungry. This is exactly what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or for justice, for they will be filled. I mean, hear that. This is all God's ever wanted is for people who come hungry and come thirsty. The problem in this community was that there were people who were coming who weren't hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They weren't 
hungry and thirsty for justice. They were perfectly fine with the world as it was. And what communion was doing was then essentially a way of just um, kind of putting a divine stamp on the way people are living their lives already. Well, how is our practice, table practice, different from anybody else's table practice? Oh, it's not. It's really the same. And what's the underlying message there? That's what's really important is power, prestige, affluence, just like it is in any other community. The table at Corinth demonstrated the fact that this community ultimately was not different from anybody else's community. And that's Paul's accusation. That's why he's saying, not only do I not, do I not commend you? I'm beefing with you because when you come to the table, it's not a table of unity. It's a table of division. This is wild. The division here. And I'm, Hey, it it was, it's, I just can't stress this enough. I find this interesting right now. The division wasn't some people in the community thought they were super spiritual. It's, it's, it's more basic than that. The, The social structure of this community had the exact same shape and character of any other community in the time. Paul's like, yeah, I'm not wrong with this. It was that people thought they were so enlightened. I think they thought God was really blessing them the way that we think that the ones within our community who are doing well, well, I, well obviously the favor of God is on them. <laughs> Communion just underwrote the same ideas that they, that they, the same ideas they had before they came to the table they're just bringing that now and they're baptizing it in Christian language. And, and that's the problem. So conversely, Paul, I think the challenge of this text is clearly there is real power in this meal. Clearly there is an invitation to participate in the life of God in a lively way in this meal. Clearly there's something better than maybe just not dying that happens in communion. <laughs> I mean, it's this is a powerful meal that to, to come in an unworthy manner would get you would get this kind of threat from the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul really actually uh, he gets he also gets a lot of bad press. Doesn't really go around threatening people all the time. With anything. This is not a person who's out on the streets. Uh, you know, <laughs> telling all telling all the folks in the market, hey, you know, repent. Because you're going to be you're going to roast in a devil's hell. That's this is really not Paul's style, but there's a special fury that comes out here uh, around this particular practice. So I think the the invitation here it's not one that's that's uh, should intimidate us, but I think it is one that should call us that should summon us into hunger and into humility. There is not a wrong person for the table of God. I I can't. I can't say that enough times or with enough emphasis. There is never a wrong person uh, for Christ's table. There is never a wrong way to say yes to Jesus. Uh, there is there there is no person who is the wrong person, but there is a wrong way. There is a wrong way to do this. And the wrong way to do this is with pride. Uh, the The wrong way to do this is not discerning rightly the body of Christ, not recognizing the image of God in the people around us. I still just, I still can't get over this. It feels just as fresh to me right now as it did the first time I saw this, that really what Paul is looking for, I think ultimately what God is looking for is not so much goodness. The amount of time in my life when I thought 
is my is is my prayer sincere enough? Am I being earnest enough? Am I seeing God with sufficient gratitude? <laughs> That's what, yeah. <laughs> Look, how about you just how about you just adjust the way that you're seeing the people around you? This this is what God's looking for. Not it's God's not concerned uh, with us having such deep piety and how we talk to God, how we see God, how earnest our feelings are. But God's very serious that when we come to the table of Christ, that we come with an attitude that's open, uh, that we come in need, that we come without presumption, that we come with our with our hands open. And there's a reason why this meal will always be challenging for some of us in that way, is that uh, there is there is dependence in this meal. And um, there really, no one gets, there is no VIP section for, for the table of Christ. <laughs> Uh, the first two wrote, there's not, not, none of that is happening here. So um, I want to be mindful of my time, which by the way, I just realized I have no idea how long this has been. Uh, but my invitation to you, because I do want to draw us into prayer. First of all, I hope that, I hope this makes you more excited about what you're about to do. Because I'm telling you, this is the main event, not a ceremonial symbolic reenactment. But right here is an opportunity to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus in ways that are powerful and wild and dangerous. I mean, I mean, this, this comes with like, you know, like here in the States, uh, the cigarettes have the surgeon general's warning on them. Communion comes with the apostles warning on this, you know, make, make sure you come in a worthy manner. Not that you're a worthy person, but make, yeah, make sure that you've emptied yourself of your hubris and your score settling and your grudges and your your social status, make sure you lay those things all the way down. Cause this, this is an invitation for a reverent meal. And, And honestly, I really believe even that what's winding Paul up here is that when we don't come to the table of Christ with our hearts open in this way, then I think we shut ourselves off from all of the healing transformational possibilities that are here. Even that's out of love. God, Paul wants us to experience the fullness of this meal, which we're not going to be able to do if we don't come empty and we don't come open. That's all God's asking for. Come hungry, come humble, come expectant. Let's pray. So God, I just ask now that as we get ready to come to this table, I ask that by your spirit, you would prepare us now for all the uh, the transformational possibilities. Healing is present in this meal, reconciliation of all forms uh, inside of us, outside of us is, are possible through this meal. Um, uh, I'm, I'm just reminded all over again, uh, God, that you teach us that it is not those who are well that need the physician. This meal is spread for the hungry and for the humble. So let us be found among them today. Um, we want to come empty. We want to come humble. We want to come hungry, knowing that you will satiate us, knowing that only you can satisfy the hunger that's deep within. I pray that all of our longing now would be met in you as we come to the table, the feast you have spread. And even now we hear the, 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 the words inviting us that the spirit and bride say, come all who are thirsty, all who are hungry, 
the Spirit of God invites you to come. Make our hearts ready now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I love that. I was thinking about communion as not a not a symbol and not a tokenistic thing just to do for the sake of doing. Um, and symbolism of the mission, it is the mission. <laughs> you know, this is what we're called to do. And, uh, and so I want to invite you into that space this morning as we take communion together. If you're new here, um, we might do it a little differently to how you have done it at your uh, church previous came from, or maybe you have never been to church and, and this is new for you. So um, how this works is when you're ready, no rush. Um, when you kind of do what, do what um, Jonathan said, just you feel like you're able to empty yourself, <laughs> rid yourself of your junk, <laughs> ego, and can come humbly. Um, you can come up here and go to either side of this aisle, grab a piece of a cracker, dip it in, and one of these guys will say a blessing over you, and then you can go back to your seat. And we'll give some time of reflection as well. Um, but let me read this out as we as we uh, come to the table. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You have been here often and you who come forward for the first time. You who have tried to follow Jesus you who have failed to follow Jesus and you have just decided to follow Jesus come leave judgment behind and receive mercy leave indifference behind and recognize God's family leave now if necessary and go be a forgiver then run back because it is the Lord who invites you and it's God's will that those who desire healing and hunger and thirst for God's justice should encounter the Holy Spirit here. So when you are ready, come.